Alright, cool. So let's finish up this exploration of the second volume here, moving into the fourth section um, titled Erotics. So we start at this section with the, I guess the first chapter in this section titled A Problematic Relation, in the first paragraph of which he makes clear that he wants to do away with some of the general terms used to describe homosexuality. And right off the bat, he kind of does away with that, well, doesn't really do away with it, but challenges that myth that homosexuality was something that was just accepted by the Greeks. Something that, you know, certainly people today come to say as being evidence of, um, I guess, the temporality of homosexual or heterosexual relationships disturbing the privileging of one over the other. So while there certainly is some truth to that, uh, Foucault wants us to consider this in other terms, really. So he starts out by saying, that the use of pleasures in the relationship with boys was a theme of anxiety for Greek thought, which is paradoxical in a society that is believed to have tolerated what we call homosexuality, but perhaps it would be just as well if we avoided those two terms here. So what he wants to do with this is to effectively reconsider the way that sexual relationships were conceived of. So there wasn't even, an, the, the idea of homosexuality didn't even exist at that time. As he says, the Greeks did not see love for one's own sex and love for the other sex's opposites as two exclusive choices, two radically different types of behavior. The dividing lines did not follow that kind of boundary. So we might recall, or for those not familiar with what Plato says in the Republic, or what Socrates says in Plato's Republic, um, he does encourage, to some extent, uh, relations between men, citizen, and, and, and boys because that would foster some degree of camaraderie, of a, of a kind of community standard that would be beneficial for the, I guess, beneficial for the community at large or for the state. And then keeping up with the general thesis of this book, it wasn't as though, um, as, as we see in Christian doctrine, that homosexual relations, I'm just going to use the term just for the sake of simplicity, it wasn't as the homosexual relations were forbidden, but rather, in the case of the Greeks, uh, neither homosexual relations or heterosexual relations were forbidden, but it was whether or not someone engaged in them too much, right? So you could essentially or ostensibly have sex with boys if you were a man, but that would not in it right in itself mean that you were not part of the community. It was only if you went so far as to enter the domain of licentiousness or promiscuity or whatever deviancy that took you further. So then Foucault asks, were the Greeks bisexuals then? To which he responds, yes, if we mean by this that a Greek could simultaneously or in turn be enamored of a boy or a girl, that a married man could have pedekia, that it was common for a male to change to a preference for women after boy-loving inclinations in his youth. But if we wish to turn our attention to the way in which they conceived of this dual practice, we need to take note of the fact that they did not recognize two kinds of desire, two different or competing drives, each claiming a share of men's hearts or appetites. We can talk about their bisexuality, thinking of the free choice they allowed themselves between the two sexes, but for them this option was not referred to a dual, ambivalent, and bisexual structure of desire. To their way of thinking, what made it possible to desire a man or a woman was simply the appetite that nature had implement, implanted 
in man's heart for beautiful human beings, whatever their sex might be, which is pretty, which is, sorry for the long quote, but it's a pretty radical idea, especially today where we have so, so many people claiming that, you know, heterosexual coupling is that, is that which um, is natural and everything else is, is fundamentally derivative. Uh, this would at least give us evidence of the fact that in different kind of epistemological frameworks, uh, these, these ideas change and alter, right? So those people who like to engage in sexual activity with either boys, boys or women were not considered two different kinds of people. They were both the same people engaging in that kind of higher order of sexuality where boys and women or men and women were kind of homogenized within that. So in refusing to kind of give, a, give an identity to those people who would either prefer to, or in the case of men, men who would prefer to sleep with boys, against those men that would prefer to sleep with women, against those men that would go from boys to women or vice versa. There, there weren't necessarily terms for all of these different things because they were all kind of possible. There was a certain degree of fluidity to them. Now, with all that being said, keeping up with the what else Foucault has kind of uncovered throughout the course of this book was that there were kind of unwritten codes and laws that would govern how people were to engage sexually. So while there wasn't necessarily interdictions placed on who could sleep with whom or in what capacity or whatever, there were limits placed on one's um, how one were to conduct that sexual activity or to, I guess the intensity of that sexual activity. So he wants now or he moves now to consider a few different kinds of um, debates around the question of love and how they played a role in the formation of that society. So the first one that Foucault kind of outlines was that there were these ideas pertaining to how uh, sexuality or sex was supposed to be conducted in relation to age. Now he makes clear right off the bat that the rules that he's going to kind of explore deal primarily with the kind of privileged notions of sexuality, right? And we would know from thinking about Greek times that that would certainly apply to, you know, slave-owning uh, uh, citizen men who probably had some role to play in in the military, right? So he gives us, gives us an example, or he, or he considers it here, um, when he says that relations between young boys were deemed completely natural and in keeping with their condition. So that was the kind of, I guess, privileged form where there was, you know, there was nothing really wrong with two, two men past adolescence being sexual with one another, but it was kind of looked down upon, as he says. So he gives the example of uh, Achilles and Pat Patroclus in, uh, in the Iliad, right? And what, what is particularly interesting about that, where he says that, uh, thus, one liked to talk about the relationship of Achilles and Patroclus, trying to determine what differenti differentiated them from one another and which of the two had precedence over the other. So this kind of coupling in uh, between someone older so and someone younger, so the attention and concern was concentrated on relations in which one can tell that much was at stake. Relations that could be established between an older male who had finished his education and who was expected to play the socially, morally, and sexually active role, and a younger one, who had not yet achieved his definitive status and who was in need of assistance, advice, and support. 
So embedded within that dynamic was following the third section, there was a kind of economic gain to be had, right? Where one person was to teach the other one how to be a kind of effective agent in that society and how that could be essentially mediated by the sexual relation. So now we enter into the second kind of, I guess, uh, debate or concern around uh, homosexual relations or men and men relations in Greek times where there was a concern in the first instance with age. And then Foucault says what was necessary was not simply age, right? And he kind of hints at that in the first one. He says it was important for the older one to take upon themselves a kind of patriarchal position to be able to be the disseminator of knowledge that could be then taken up by the younger uh, the younger boy who would was then responsible for taking it upon themselves to learn from their partner or from the, the other man that they were with. So now we enter the third aspect, which is an interesting one, where Foucault says that uh, unlike the male-female relationship, which, which could be found in the oikos of the household, there was a split, right? So the man would occupy the exterior of the house free to kind of go into the public sphere and engage as an agent there whereas the woman was confined in a sense to the house. So Foucault says that there was a kind of spatial configuration there whereas the relationship between men because we know of Greek times men were the ones that were citizens and that could talk in public and that had, could take up space uh, we know because of that then that that relationship was predicated on a kind of openness or an open spatiality, as he calls it. So there wasn't that same kind of command of the patriarch, even though that's the term I used earlier to describe him, over the, from of the patriarch over the subordinate, quote-unquote subordinate one, uh, like there was in the male-female relationship. So the young boy, although needing to be at the whim of the older one, at least in the process of attaining knowledge, was, in all other respects, a kind of free agent, free to go about doing as they wish in that kind of open uh, system that they, that they occupied. So then what constituted a boy in contrast to um, an adult man? Well, Foucault says that this is a very interesting question and kind of opens up a uh, problem around the temporality of these uh, of these uh, respective positions where it was it was considered at times that the beard was the mark of a kind of the, of coming into manliness so as a consequence of this um, the adolescent physique as Foucault writes became the object of a kind of cultural valorization that was quite pronounced and I think it would be really interesting to trace the affinities between uh, that idea then and, and the kind of ideas that we have about that now no, perhaps not even necessarily in relation to boys but a cer certainly young, uh, young women but what was particularly striking at least, at least what drew people to and this is what Foucault argues what drew people to kind of juvenile bodies was the promise of their virility so they knew what was to come and saw that because they were still in a process of development then they were kind of, they took on a kind of like blank slate, right? And because of that, they could then be subject to certain ideas that perhaps otherwise later in life would be more difficult to kind of 
um, to, to indoctrinate them to. So they had a kind of um, naivete that could be effectively mobilized for the betterment of society or, well, the state. And then finally, Foucault says that the, this relationship between boys and men posited or presented a kind of difference from the sort of self-control and asceticism that we saw in the section on like dietetics, where he says that at one time, where in economics and dietetics, the voluntary moderation of the man was based mainly on his relation to himself. In erotics, the game was more complicated. It implied self-mastery on the part of the lover. It also implied an ability on the part of the beloved to establish a relation of domination over himself. And lastly, it implied a, relation, a relationship between their two moderations expressed in their deliberate choice of one another. So there, there we have the kind of five um, aspects of boy man love that interests Foucault so so much here. Uh, and then we move into the second chapter in this section titled The Boy's Honor. So in this in this chapter we're presented again with another kind of list. Foucault loves his lists. Um, kind of asking the question of the relationship between pleasure and love within this these kinds of relations. So how did these relations open up a discourse for pleasure and for love for that matter? So Foucault Foucault begins considering the kind, of, the kind of split between what was considered honorable and what was considered shameful, hence the title of the chapter, Boy's Honor. So he says, the behavior of young men thus appears to have been a domain that was especially sensitive to the division between what was shameful and what was proper, between what reflected credit and what brought dishonor. So it was this question that preoccupied those who chose to reflect on young men, on the love that was manifested for them and the conduct they needed to exhibit. So Foucault takes this idea of the kind of shame and honor that would possibly fall onto young men or boys and kind of contrasts that with, with what women would experience, right? So shame and honor, and this is kind of moving into the second uh, point that he, that he makes, um, shame and honor had a very different effect on the young boy than it did on the young girl. So he says, but in regard to the Greek boy, the importance of his honor did not concern, as it would later in the case of the European girl, his future marriage. Rather, it related to his status, his eventual place in the city. So it was necessary then for boys, if they sought the opportunity to be an active agent in the city later in life, they had to begin thinking about that or considering what was honorable and what was shameful at a rather young age where it was they had to understand the possible consequences of failing to uh, accommodate, adapt to, I guess, exist in a world or exist in the way that was expected of them. So there were a number of factors, and now we're moving into the third section, that determined whether a boy was honorable or whether he was sh should be shamed, uh, uh, should be ashamed. So this, this was a kind of test, he says, or test to determine who actually fell into which group, where Foucault says the test pertained to the familiar points of Greek education. So they were the demeanor of the body, so those people that were able to avoid sluggishness, which was always a def def defamatory, defamatory, my God, sign, 
There was one's gaze or their dignity, one's way of talking. So don't take the easy option of silence, but be able to mix serious talk with casual talk. And then there was the quality of one's acquaintances. So all of these things played a role, and those don't really have anything to do with sexuality per se, to which Foucault follows that and says, like, while all these things did play a role, none of them was quite as, um, quite as poignant as sexuality or what he calls the sphere of amorous conduct that determined whether one was going, was going to be perceived as honorable or shameful. So in all this, it was important for the boy to have some degree of knowledge or to be generally wary of taking the first suitor in the, in the, in the older man because that would demonstrate a lack of judgment or poor judgment if they made the wrong choice. So they had to then, following these kinds of guidelines, right, pertaining to the domain of, of sexual relations, the acquaintances they had, their dignity, everything like this, was to be essentially mobilized in favor of allowing them to be put in contact or proximity with those people that would foster, would shape, and would mold them in such a way so that they would be beneficial for society and therefore beneficial for themselves. So this was, as Foucault writes, this is, uh, this presents a problem of how the boy is not is not to yield to others but to demonstrate a mastery over themselves so it shouldn't be as though the boy like i said just gives himself up to anyone but within the act of giving themselves up it has to be justified and it has to be done in such or had to be done in such a way as to make it clear that they approached the matter in such in, in, in a way that was for the benefit of themselves. So they give themselves up, I suppose, through an act of self-mastery, and it's kind of paradoxical in that way. So it is important, I think, to take from all this, and the point that Foucault is really trying to make is to dissuade, you know, the us in the 21st century kind of inputting our own kind of moral understandings of these issues, just kind of placing that onto the Greeks and, and judging them in, in that way or other. But rather it shows that there, was, there were these really complex relationships that went on in those spheres. And it wasn't quite as simple as, let's say, Greeks wanting to or, or were effectively all bisexuals or something like that. There were codes, there were conventions that were, you know, oppressive perhaps to some extent but that gave people a sense of mastery over themselves you know be it for good or, or not but it certainly at the very least i think points to a kind of emergence of a subjectivity or an individualism that we often associate with a kind of 17th or 18th century uh logic right so it, it kind of th throws that temporalization out of whack but here i digress now we move into the third chapter of this section, The Object of Pleasure. So as the title of this chapter might suggest, Foucault is interested here in how the act of sex, so what he says kind of kind of explicitly dealing primary or dealing with the sex as a as it, through penetration, uh, or what he calls the principles of isomorphism, he's interested in how one party within that framework is rendered subordinate to another. So we, I think we should, 
for those that listened to the other one or who've read this book, uh, you know, we can hear echoes of how Foucault was considering um, the relationship between men and women in, in terms of sex and sexuality and ejaculation here. So in his words, he says, what this means, that is prin- the principle of isomorphism, he says, what this means is that sexual relations always conceived in terms of the model act of penetration assuming a polarity that opposed activity and passivity were seen as being of the same type as the relationship between a superior and a subordinate, an individual who dominates and one who is dominated, one who commands and one who complies, one who vanquishes and one who is vanquished. So he's not really interested here in the kind of like sexual relations that would develop between slave owners and slaves because that does, you know, that was just a although would follow fall into the same kind of criterion. Uh, Foucault's not really interested in that, not because he thinks it's unimportant, but that it doesn't really tell us anything about the sexual relations, the privileged sexual relations that he's focusing on. So rather, he's interested in the way that free boys, right, boys that would be destined to become citizens, how they gave themselves over, how they were expected to give themselves over in the sexual relation. So, as he says, in a game regulated according to such principles, the position of the freeborn boy, freeborn boy was difficult. To be sure, he was still in an inferior position in the sense that he was a long way from benefiting from the rights and powers that would be his when he attained the full enjoyment of his status, and yet his place was not assimilable to that of a slave, nor to that of a woman. So this kind of framework of domination and subordination posed a little bit of a problem because at one time this society wanted to foster, um, I guess, foster the ability for men to engage as active agents in that world, yet demanded of them that they were to be sub- subject at some point in their lives to this kind of authority in the being act being penetrated. So Foucault says that, of course, this it didn't matter for like women and slaves, like because they were considered subhuman, right, sub-citizen. But rather, the case, as he says, altered when it involved the man. So it is doubtless the existence of this difficulty that explains both the silence in which the relationship between adults was actually enveloped, and the noisy disqualification of those who broke the silence by declaring their acceptance of, or rather, their preference for this subordinate role. It was also in view of this difficulty that all the attention was concentrated on the relationship between men and boys, since in this case one of the two partners, owing to his youth and to the fact that he had not yet attained manly status, could be, for a period that everyone knew to be brief, an admissible object of pleasure. So this all becomes a problem when one day it is then expected that that boy who has been rendered an object of someone else's pleasure has to then become the one that dominates, right? Becomes the one that has, takes for themselves their own object of pleasure. So Foucault calls this the antinomy of the boy. So this is an antimony because it represents a kind of contradiction, right? The paradox of being a boy. So this antinomy was wholly necessary for Foucault, or at least as he, as he suggests at that time, because of that transition that, would, that the boy would undergo. So he says, now it gets rather complicated, he says that in the first place there was an oscillation. 
He's, and then he goes on to say that this is difficult for us to grasp because we so often associate uh, sexual identity or, or sexual conduct in relation to nature or, uh, or nurture, where we privilege one over the other. But he says of that time where they didn't have these kinds of distinctions, it was held for granted that the attraction to boys was natural in just the same way as all movement was carried out in the direction of the beautiful, in, sorry, was carried one, oh my god, oh, let's take a step back, David, Ooh, I could pause it and then, you know, recover, but I'm going to bask in my embarrassment here. Okay, he says, on one side, it was held for granted that the attraction to boys was natural in just the same way as all movement that carried one in the direction of the beautiful was natural. And yet it was not unusual to find the assertion that relations between men are more generally between two individuals of the same sex is paraphysin, beside nature. Of course, one can infer that these two views indicate two different attitudes, one favorable and the other hostile to that kind of love. So the kind of naturality of that in, in this way is particularly interesting and it gives us like I don't know how many conceptual tools to reevaluate the way in which there are certain dominating thoughts about uh, about the way that sexual relations have to be conducted, uh, but it certainly calls calls those things into question. So what was of concern then was not the uh, not the fact that two males were were in a sexual relation, but because of the whole I guess the societal framework how men were supposed to be privileged. It was, it kind of opened up a, a, a possibility of a kind of cognitive dissonance in having boys suddenly become subordinate to other males, right? Because they were living in a world that ostensibly gave all citizens, i.e., you know, white slave owning males, the ability to act as free agents. It was then kind of difficult to swallow, or it was a hard pill to swallow that some boys would be subject, subjected to other ones. So in, in, in all the literature that Foucault reads or kind of explores for this, and I should say for those that hope to read this or, or have read it, I omit, like, as I said I would do in the last episode, um, I omit, like, all of the kind of textual references because then it's bogged down in names and plots and all that. So he kind of gives us a, another, another point here in relation to all those texts that he brings up where he says that the problem of considering the boy as an object of pleasure, so keeping up with what I was saying about um, the kind of antinomy, as he says it, or the paradox of the boy's subordination, so the problem of considering the boy as an object of pleasure was also manifested by a noticeable reticence on several points. So there was a reluctance to evoke directly, and in so many words, the role of the boy in sexual intercourse. Sometimes quite general expressions are employed, such as to do the thing. Other times, the thing is designated by the very impossibility of naming it, or again. And this is what says most about the problem posed by the relation. People resorted to metaphorical terms that were agnostic or political. To yield, to submit, to render a service. And what is more, Foucault says that there was also a reluctance to concede that the boy might experience pleasure. This denial should be interpreted both as the affirmation that such a pleasure could not exist 
end as the prescription that it ought not to be experienced. Sorry I'm so quote-heavy quote with this, but like, you know, Foucault says it best, and I, yeah, whatever. And he continues here, Between the man and the boy, there is not, there cannot and should not be, a community of pleasure. So this was because if a boy too easily gave themselves over, or appeared to enjoy in the act of the, the sex that would ensue too, uh, too readily, then it pointed to their loss of dignity, right? It pointed to their loss of self-control and self-mastery and signaled their giving themselves over to the kind of demons of licentiousness or um, kind of promiscuity that was bad for them, would, would be bad for them in the future. So it was only when they demonstrated to themselves and to the people that would observe them that they were giving themselves over of their own volition that they could kind of disappear in that moment, right? They could then become an object of someone's pleasure. But if and only if they've actually gone through the necessary steps to demonstrate that they are doing so out of their own self-mastery. So that kind of wraps up that, uh, I guess, Part four, erotics. Uh, now we'll go into part five here. So he says, this being his primary concern, he says that after the relation to the body and to health, after the relation to wives and to the institution of marriage, and after the relation to boys, to their freedom and their virility, I would like now to consider the relation to truth. So this question then, especially in its um, proposing, or this, this section proposing a kind of question about truth, marks a kind of, or the shift that occurs with the Socratic and Platonic traditions. So concerning essences, right? So he asks, now Socratic Platonic erotics is radically different from those kinds of other approaches, indicative of Aristophanes, Xenophon, you know, all these other figures that he that he mentions here, where he says that the question will be as follows. What is love in its very being? So a very kind of Socratic question, right? So this kind of this section kind of, get, you know, gets at uh, the, the Socratic thinking about love not necessarily in terms of how it could be conducted on the physical plane, right? So the Socratic way would, or Socrates would have been much more interested or was much more interested in the question of love in relation to the love that can be formed through the soul, right? So how friendship could be fostered, how love of, you know, um, your, your fellow com community or citizen or whatever would be fostered. So it, it kind of saw the flesh as being something that hindered that possibility. So now we enter another list here, where the first list is dealing with the question of, or from the question of amorous being to an inquiry into the nature of love, so the nature of love belonging to that kind of platonic or Socratic uh, notion, where Foucault says that all the other inter interlocutors orient their speeches toward praise or criticism toward the division between good and bad love, toward the delimitation of what one should and should not do, in the customary thematics with its search for appropriateness and its elaboration of an art of courtship, the primary object of reflection is conduct, or the game of reciprocal conducts. 
Plato puts all of this aside, at least provisionally, and going beyond the division of good and bad, he raises the question of what it means to love. So while one would be correct to say that, or in saying that Plato essentially looked down upon uh, the physical body as being a site for love, uh, which would be correct. Foucault says that this is actually really, this is part of a, of a bigger tradition, really. So Plato didn't really stand out in that respect. But where he did stand out, and what is interesting, was how love, as it, was, as it manifested itself in relation to um, its, its connection to the soul, could then present a foray into this thing called truth. So, for Plato, as Foucault writes, it is not exclusion of the body that characterizes true love in a fundamental way. It is rather that beyond the appearances of the object, love is a relation to truth. So then Plato doesn't necessarily regard the sexual relation between boys, or between anyone for that matter, as being an agonistic one. So it wasn't like a competition, even though that, you know, Foucault would say, well, yeah, it kind of was. Uh, because for Plato, and, it, and it's really interesting, uh, because they were both striving to, I guess, both moving towards truth, because he makes the claim that love has that connection to truth, because of that, they were on the same team. They were working together in tandem towards this kind of higher order. So although it might appear as though there was a kind of uh, violent acting upon the object of pleasure in this relation, that if we get beyond the appearance of that, which was necessary for the enactment of a kind of physical love, what we could then get at is the, is the truth behind it. So Plato gives us a kind of the conceptual tools towards what Foucault says is the kind of uh, we, uh, the future inquiry into desiring man, what he says. And that is through the opening up of kind of two different relations to truth, where uh, there is the relation between one's own desires question in relation to the person themselves being a being or being, and then there was a relation to the object of desire recognized as a true being. So this is, for Foucault, a very important point. So he says, thus we see where ground is broken for a future inquiry into a desiring man, which does not mean that platonic erotics has suddenly and permanently taken leave of the ethics of pleasures and their use. We shall see, on the contrary, that the latter continued to develop and transform itself. But the tradition of thought that stems from Plato was to play an important role when, much later, the problematization of sexual behavior would be reworked in terms of the con concupiscent soul and the deciphering of its arcana. And because there was this whole discourse around the relationship to the self and then the relationship to this kind of transcendental truth, there were heavy forms of austerity placed on those bodies. So despite the, you know, attempt by, or the fact that many people look back on the Greeks in, in terms of like sexual relations and says, oh, wow, look how emancipated, look how free they were. Foucault says, not quite. Because although they were able to engage in sexual acts, perhaps with it, with less uh, with fewer interdictions that we can see today, uh, there were still kind of these, these codes in place that were wholly 
dependent upon people acting a certain way. So they weren't quite as free as they as you know we consider them to be historically. So then that kind of wraps that up here. And then moving into the conclusion, and we'll hopefully wrap this up soon. So he gives us a kind of a recap of what went on here. And, you know, because it's a good recap, he says, um, each of the three great arts of self-conduct, the three major techniques of the self that were developed in the Greek thought or in Greek thought, dietetics, economics, and erotics, proposed, if not a particular sexual ethics, then at least a singular modulation of sexual conduct. In this elaboration of the demands of austerity, not only did the Greeks not seek to define of codes of conduct binding everyone, neither did they seek to organize sexual behavior, behavior as a domain governed by a, in all its aspects by one and the same set of principles. With that being said, however, it wasn't as though they didn't have these same kinds of codes or regimens that governed how people should act. So in the Greeks, we see a sort of anticipation, um, a kind of foreshadowing of what would come to be developed in the Christian um, traditions as far as austerity goes, except not quite as uh, explicit in, in their methods. So I guess that's like it here. This, you know, I didn't expect to do this, spend so much time on this one here, because uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a really powerful historical account in the third volume you know, I don't remember it as well currently, but before I get to it, I will review it. Uh, it's, it's a lot more of the same, except he turns his attention to dreams, interestingly enough. Uh, in the uh, dreams in the analysis of dreams in Greek times, interpretation of dreams. So that uh, it's, it seems to me like a little jab at Freud, or at least if people think Freud was the first one to kind of, you know, consider dreams to be ways of the unconscious speaking to people because evidently the Greeks were doing that thousands of years ago uh, but with that you know I hope there was something to be gleaned from this and that I wasn't you know I didn't just hope I'm not too boring but anyways whatever for those that listened take care see you next time